Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. And let me pray for our word today. Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, your word is truth. Your word is life-giving. It is hope-restoring. It is true, bedrock, foundational reality that shapes our lives. And your word will endure forever. When this world and its wisdom is in the ash can of history, your word endures forever. Your word is light to our path. It's a compass to guide us. It is life-giving, soul-satisfying truth. And it points us to the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from heaven to earth, was born of a virgin, died on our behalf, rose up out of the grave triumphant as the life-giving Word of God. Lord, let us behold You today. Let us behold You. Let us rejoice in You. Let Your Word shine in our hearts and marinate upon our souls. And I pray that Your Spirit would come upon this message and that You would prepare our hearts for it. I pray that, that, that a word would be given to each of us right where we need it most. I pray for prophetic insight and wisdom and grace to be able to speak truth faithfully and clearly, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with a love for Your people, filled with a joy for this passage, and that You would be made much of, and that Your name would be heralded. And we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So I uh, was approaching Saturday and I had Philippians all ready to go. We were working on Philippians all week and I just sensed the Lord wanted me to preach Psalm 95 yesterday and about halfway through the day, I'm like, all right, Lord, I don't, there's not a sermon ready. <laughs> so are we doing this? And he's like, we're doing this. <laughs> you know? So I, I, I sensed that the Lord just wanted us to get a word from Psalm 95. And sometimes we need to hear certain truths that the Spirit of God wants to call our attention to. And all of the Bible's profitable, right? But the Spirit of the Lord sometimes has a word for His people that is exactly what we need to hear. And that's my heart for today, that we would get help from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is clumped together in... in uh, a group of psalms that is um, called the magisterial psalms from 93 to about 100. And they exalt God as king. And they put before us the kingship of God, that the Lord is the king of all the earth. But this psalm in particular does something different. This psalm actually speaks to us a word of warning. A word that's meant to bring renewal a word from the Holy Spirit that we actually read as our scripture reading today where the Holy Spirit says, 
Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. That comes from Psalm 95. And the Spirit of God draws attention to it in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, to remind us of a great salvation that we have, that if we neglect the Word of God through unbelief, we will not enter the rest of God. And so I started thinking yesterday about what do we need most? Sometimes we need spiritual renewal to break into our souls. Sometimes we need a word from the Lord that penetrates the depths of our hearts right where we're at and brings a fresh revival in our hearts. A revival of the supremacy of God's word. A passion for the word of God. A revival in our souls of a high vision of who God is, that he's the king of glory. Sometimes we need a spiritual revival to awaken in us the depth and ugliness of sin in all of its horror. And it's not pleasant, but the Spirit does a work in our souls to bring us into a knowledge of that so that we would run to the Lord afresh, remembering the gospel. And if we're not believers, that knowledge of sin before a holy God drives us to the cross. That's the only answer. Jesus Christ crucified on a cross, risen up out of the dead for the justification of His people, all who will call upon His name. And then, lastly, what revitalizes our soul, what renews us, what brings just life to shoot into your Christian life and kind of renew you is an awareness of what it means to be the people of God. So when we walk into Psalm 95, it's going to do that in our souls. It's going to remind us of that five-fold reality. And I just want to call them five pillars of spiritual renewal or revitalization. Five pillars that we can stand on as a church that if we stand on them, we will see renewal in our hearts. We will see awakening in our city. We will see the kind of thing happening in our families, in our friendships, in our workplaces that God is glorified, the gospel's made much of, and Jesus is on display in and among his people. And that's what Christianity is all about. So look with me at Psalm 95 and let's just take it in in one full reading and then we'll get after the different points. Verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. We just did that, right? Praise to the Lord, for He is good. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. 
Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, and hear this pastorally, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Pillar number one. Pillar number one for the renewal of our souls is that we must stand on the word of God. We must heed, we must listen to, we must obey, and we must make much of God's word. That's what it says right there in verse, the end of verse 7. Today, if you will hear his voice, whose voice? The voice of the Lord. And when the voice of the Lord speaks, that is what the Bible is doing to us. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the voice of the Lord speaks, we are getting revelation from God to us for our souls. And all churches throughout history who have been set ablaze by God for the glory of His name have put the Scriptures central. That's why a pulpit is in the center of this room because we want to make much of God's Word. We don't want to hear the mere words of men, but the words of God. Not unto us, not unto us, but unto His name be glory. And He is glorified when His Word is exalted and made much of. Today, if you hear His voice. Now, Israel... In Exodus, they were delivered miraculously and given Moses as a prophet to speak the very words of God to them. And what Moses spoke, God spoke to them. And what the Bible says to us, God is speaking to us. But Israel grew dull of hearing. They grumbled. They had been delivered miraculously in the Exodus, brought out through the Red Sea, the Red Sea parts, Pharaoh's troops are swallowed up in the water and drowned, and they've got manna coming from heaven, and they've got quail kind of coming in out of nowhere because God's feeding them and caring for them. Pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. God's there. God showed up. God's speaking. And they grumble. And they fail to hear and listen and heed the word of God. And ultimately, it meant disaster for them. Where are we at today when it comes to listening to the voice of the Lord in the scriptures? Is the word of God paramount? 
in our studies, in our time? Do we, do we, when we have issues, when we have difficulties arise, when we have situations where we need to look for guidance, do we come to the Word of God? Or do we go to the next self-help book? Or what is Dr. Phil saying? Or what has Oprah said today? Or is it the Word of God controlling the ways we see things? God's Word must be paramount. And I'll tell you something. In the 16th century, there was a man named Martin Luther. And he was a feisty little German monk who was a part of the Catholic Church. And he did not like what he saw. When he looked around, he began to see perversion in the church. He began to see the church selling salvation and indulgences. And he began to see the church not building upon the Word of God, departing from the Word of God, not holding up justification by faith alone through Christ alone. And he was abominating these central things that were being denied in the Catholic Church. And so he wrote 95 theses to get at the heart of what was wrong with the Roman system. And he nailed it to the church door of Wittenberg and he actually got into a world of trouble once he did that. And they picked up that 95 Theses and they started printing it out. And the Protestant Reformation was born. And people began to read the Word of God for themselves because he translated it into German. And the people began to awaken to the Gospel afresh because... Martin Luther stood upon the Word of God. And finally, they actually brought him into something called the Diet of Worms. And this was a place where he was on trial for his very life because the Pope wanted him dead. And they wanted him to recant all of his writings. And he says to them, in just this powerful moment that launches the Reformation, he says, I will not recant my writings unless it can be proven that what I am saying is false by the word of God and plain reason. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. And the Protestant Reformation was born. And the gospel was recovered. And the Spirit of God began to blow upon the church and people began to get saved because Jesus was being made much of. The Word of God was being recovered. And I'll tell you, it was costly for Martin Luther. He had to go through a whole lot. He had to be imprisoned. His threats upon his life, attempted murders, all sorts of things that were seeking to destroy him. But he was faithful and he would take a stand on the Word of God and follow it no matter what. Will that be our hearts? It was costly for Luther. But will we take a stand in our day when it is difficult? When you might be called a bigot for standing for biblical morality. When you might ultimately be mocked and maligned and made to look a fool because you believe the Bible, the Word of God. 
And it's no wonder that the devil is twisting things up and making people think, oh, well, Christianity is just out of touch in this archaic old religion that needs to be modified and updated. And we got to embrace this whole larger ethic of love and sexual immorality and perversion. No. We stand upon the Word of God. We say with Martin Luther, here I stand and I can do no other. This is the Word of God. Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold and even much fine gold. Sweeter than honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. And moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Brothers and sisters, behold the Word of God. God's Word is perfect and without error. God's Word will revive your weary soul. God's Word is the source of all wisdom and the sure foundation for your life. And God's Word opens our eyes to what's really going on around us and inside of us. And God's Word satisfies our deepest longings by pointing us to the One who can satisfy. Christ, who is the very Word of God made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, to give life to your souls if you will believe. God's Word warns us of judgment and issues reward for our obedience. Behold the majestic, powerful, life-giving, transforming Word of God. All the words of men will pass away, but the Word of the Lord will endure forever. We must stand here on the Word of God. Pillar number two. We must recover a high view of God. We must recover a high view of God. And it's the one we find in this psalm. Look at verse 3. The Lord, or for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His for He made it and His hands formed the dry land. We must recover a high view of the majesty and the glory of God. For the Lord our God is a great God, and He's a great King above all gods. Now, we got to be careful there because it's not saying that there's all these other gods around that are real and tangible and are actually something that we worship. No, look at Psalm 96, just one psalm over, verses uh, 4 and 5 say the same thing but expand it to help us correct that. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and He is to be feared above all gods. And now listen, for all the gods, little g, of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord 
made the heavens in the earth. There's only one God who's our maker, our sustainer, and made the heavens and the earth. There is only one true and living God. And He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. I remember watching Rudy, that famous movie of the um, boy who wanted to become a Notre Dame football player. And he was short, ruddy, not very athletic, but he had a lot of heart. And, you know, Rudy, Rudy, that sort of thing. And he, he goes to Notre Dame, and he can't get in, and so he's got to do a little bit of, uh, you know, um, secondary education at a community college. And it comes to this point where he's, like, ready to give up, and he goes to see um, a priest at Notre Dame. And he's like, do you really think I've got a shot to, to do this? I really want to be a Notre Dame football star, and I want to play for the team, and it's just been a lifelong dream. And the priest looks at him, and he says, listen, there's, there's two truths that are just bedrock core realities in life that I know of. Number one, there is a God. And number two, I am not him. And that is a profound statement because there is a God and we are not it. Contrary to American you know, uh, opinion where we put ourselves at the center of the universe, we are not God. We have to go to sleep every day. And if we don't, we're going to crash because we're not God. God doesn't have to rest. God is God and there is no other. And Psalm 95 reminds us, great is our God. He is great. He is majestic. He is the King. He's one of a kind. There's nobody like Him. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The buck stops with Him. His authority is unchallenged at the end of the day. His grace is abundant. His justice is pure and good and right. And He cannot look away from evil. He must deal with it. His wrath breaks out rightly in white-hot anger against our sin because He is holy and good. He is a great God and He is a great King over all. Sovereign and majestic. And all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord, He is our God. I was at the Creation Museum the other day and went into the planetarium and there's this whole show that they do and basically you start seeing the universe and it's like you know backing out from our solar system to the next solar system to the next solar system and then you got galaxy upon galaxy and galaxy and and pretty soon you see the vast scope of the universe that God has made and they start talking about this star called Betelgeuse and then they put that star, which is like 96 times bigger than our sun, and they put it just what it would look like if it was in our solar system. And it totally eclipsed all the planets, all the way to Neptune. And God made that star. God holds that star in existence. God holds us where we are. He created all things. Look at verse 4. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. He, uh, the sea is His for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Can anybody 
plumb the depths of our great God. He is sovereign over it all. And it says from the depths of the earth to the heights of the mountain, God is in control. And that should be a great encouragement to you if you're a believer. Because Romans 8.28 says, God works together all things for those who for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So God is working things even in the hard stuff for you right now for good if you're a believer. He's working that out in His sovereign purposes. He controls beetle guys. Surely He can control the affairs in your life to work them for good. And the difficulties and the tragedies and the sufferings will all be working for His glorious good purpose. He gets glory and we get the good. And even if we don't see it this side of heaven, oh, there's glory waiting. Even though your outward man is perishing, inwardly you're being renewed day by day. And there's glorious things awaiting the people of God. No eye has seen, no ear has heard the uh, things God has prepared for those who love Him. Now when we think about God, we have to remember the words of A.W. Tozer, who said famously, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You might balk at that for a second, like, really? Really? What, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It makes the difference between whether you're a true believer and one who is lost because if you don't have a vision of who god is who christ is who you are in your need for salvation there's no hope and tozer again says the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of god and has substituted it for one that is so low so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking worshiping men now, he was writing about 50, 60 years ago, and that was true back then of the state of the church, broadly in America. And now we're living in a world that is clearly going post-Christian in America. And brothers and sisters, we are the salt and the light. We are the ones who will pick up the banner of God's word and herald a true vision of who God is. And he is the Lord. He's the great king above all gods. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. We declare this truth. We herald this message and the world desperately needs it. What happens when we fail to give God the glory that He's due? What happens when we fail to have an exalted view of God? What happens when we fail to make much of Him? We, 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 we don't do what Revelation 4.11 says. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and all things existed by your will and were created. That's the glory that we ought to ascribe to God. But instead, listen to what Romans chapter 1 has to say when we reject this God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Wrath is coming for those who fail to give God the glory he is due. And that's what Romans defines sin as, right? Failing to give God the glory he's due. Failing to acknowledge him, to give thanks to him. What's the opposite of what we see here in, in this psalm? If you look at the first two verses. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. And let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. That's what happens when a soul comes alive to God. They just burst out in praise. You can't but praise this God if you've come to know him. If you've come to know him through Jesus Christ. If you've been awakened to a high view of scripture and a high view of God. And you've been awakened to this. It's just praise comes from that. Just like you would praise if you were standing before the Grand Canyon with your mouth open at this gaping hole in the ground and seeing, whoa, glorious, beautiful. When you see God rightly, you do that. And he is infinitely more glorious than the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is just pointing to him. Just like Beetlegeist and, and all these other things that God has made. Pillar number three, we must realize the true ugliness of our sin. And it's not pleasant and it's not popular to talk about sin, but you can't understand the sweetness of the gospel if you don't understand the ugliness of your sin. And we need to see it. If you look at the end of verse seven, it says, today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. They seen my work for 40 years. I loathed that generation and said, they are a people that go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They grumbled. They were gloriously delivered in the Exodus and they grumbled before a holy God who was throwing manna uh, out of heaven and quail, and, and miraculous deliverance, constant words being given to them through their prophet, and they grumbled, and they wasted away in the wilderness, wandering for 38 plus years. Because they failed to heed the word of God, they hardened their hearts to it. And that is the essence of sin. It's failing to take God at his word. It's what happened in the garden, right? It's what Adam and Eve did when they heard the word of the serpent. They believed him over the word of God. God loves us. God provides for us. And instead of honoring him, we dishonor him. And our foolish hearts are darkened. And instead of giving glory to him, we give glory to other things. 
and we become thankless and we grumble and we could have been delivered out of the Red Sea, seeing it part, watching the greatest army on the face of the planet get decimated in the powerful work of God at the Exodus, which is what happened when Pharaoh got put down. He saw who this God is when he was experiencing the plagues of judgment. This God is not to be trifled with. And when we dishonor Him, wrath comes. And that's what we see in this passage. And it gets to the point where they're, they're saying to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us out here? Could you imagine that? They were being brutally, brutally treated and enslaved and they'd rather go back to that because their hearts got twisted up and they failed to believe the promises. They failed to believe the promises that God had made and they did not take Him at His word. And everybody but Caleb and Joshua perished in the wilderness. And it's meant to be a warning for us it's a warning that will bring about spiritual renewal in your soul if you will heed it. If you will recognize your sin. Sometimes we like to talk about sin like it's out there, but it's in the church too, right? Sometimes we like to talk about sin as if it's this kind of like amorphous blob out there, but we got sin going on in here. And the Lord wants to deal with our hearts where we're at where we're failing to give Him the glory He's due, where we're failing to honor Him and thank Him, and we're grumbling, and we're moaning, and we're complaining, and we need the rescue of God to break in. We need this Word. It's in Scripture because we need it. Look at verse 10. For 40 years I loathed that generation, and they... And said to them, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The famous Puritan once said, his name's John Owen. He once said, if you are not killing sin, sin will be killing you. If you are not killing sin... Sin will be killing you. And it brings God's wrath and it destroys our souls and it's wanting to work its way towards its most ugly form. Sin never stays cute and cuddly. It starts out that way. But then it gets ugly and out of control. And that's how addictions start. That's how deep-seated bitterness comes in. It started in an angry out, you know, conversation. And then it turned and festered and turned and festered. And pretty soon before you know it, you're bitter and you're swallowed up in that bitterness because sin is wanting to give birth to its worst form in your life. Do you think Cain ever thought he would kill his brother Abel? He's like, I'm going to get up today and kill my brother. It started somewhere. It started in the heart. It started with an argument. It started with displeasure and Abel being received in his sacrifice, but Cain's wasn't. And it gave birth to death. 
Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So we got to have a realistic portrait of our sin. And we have to really experience the weight of that, that heaviness, that, that all of Israel perished in the wilderness except for a few people because of unbelief. And that warning is brought forward in the New Testament and spoken to the church. And lest we say, oh, that's just for them. Please know that sin needs to be dealt with. And now we come to pillar number four. Pillar number four is that we need to recover the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim it. We need to understand it and we need to proclaim it. Look at verse two. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We've got a rock. We've got the greatest news in all the world that God raised up a rock and sent him to the cross. God raised up the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And he said, I lay it down and I can take it up again. And I will take it up for the salvation of my people. This is the greatest news in all the world that we could be saved from the wrath and judgment of God in Christ. And let us not forget it, brothers and sisters, that the rescue has been provided in Jesus Christ. That if you are floundering under discouragement and depression and dehabilitating condemnation, and if you look to Jesus and you are a believer, you remember what he's done for you on the cross. You remember what he's done dying for you. And while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Look at verse 11. There's a reason it's here. Therefore, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. For unbelief, you don't enter rest. But if you trust in the Lord, you enter the rest of God's salvation. You no longer are trying to do it on your own. All of man-made religion is an attempt to save ourselves or justify ourselves before our fellow man, before God. And it's empty, it's bankrupt, it's worthless. But this great hope of the gospel means that you can rest from trying to do it on your own. And you can trust the one who did it for you. You can hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you needing the rest of God to break into your heart? Look to the one who provides it. Don't cling to your own abilities. Don't try to moral bootstrap it and try to deal with that issue apart from the gospel. The gospel impacts everyday life. It has everything to do with your marriage. It has everything to do with how you deal with bitterness. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and evil speaking be put away from you. Along with all malice. 
but be tender-hearted towards one another, forgiving one another, what? As God in Christ has forgiven you. Gospel answers for real problems. You're struggling with bitterness? The gospel needs to be applied. We need to move away from the mindset that the gospel is something that you preach to non-believers and you don't preach to yourself. We must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We've got to understand it. We've got to work it into our souls and remind ourselves of its truths. You want to understand how to have a marriage that flourishes? Look at Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Wives, submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel being played out in the picture of marriage. Meditate on that. Recover it. It's so easy for us to miss the beauty and the glory of the gospel in everyday living. And I want to warn us of a couple things. We can have distorted views of the gospel. Something I call the skinny gospel is a gospel that's Christianity light. It's taking something away that's essential, an essential truth. If we just preach the love of God, but never the justice of God, we're not preaching the gospel. If we're just saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and you don't got to do anything else. We're not preaching the gospel. The gospel is God is wrathful towards our sin, but he is loving and he has provided a way to satisfy his justice and extend mercy at the same time because he sent his holy, sinless son to die and pay the penalty for our sins to rescue us from the wrath of God. And anybody who comes to him doesn't experience wrath, they experience rest. Avoid the skinny gospel. Don't deny central truths of who God is and what He's done. It's very easy to do. Sometimes it's done at funerals and we just miss it out of a sense of trying to be well-meaning and compassionate. We don't preach the gospel and we assume it. And it's been said that if you assume the gospel, it only takes one generation to start denying the gospel. And then another generation and you lose the gospel altogether. But we can also have a bloated gospel, brothers and sisters. A bloated gospel is when you start adding things to the gospel. You add works. You add circumcision, which the Judaizers did in the uh, letter of the Galatians. We start adding to the gospel. Well, you've got to be baptized to be saved. That's adding to the gospel. The gospel is for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And those who believe honor and obey the command of Christ to be baptized. But they don't get baptized to get in. We need to recover a sense of of the beauty and importance of the gospel every day in our lives. One writer put it like this, the reality of present day Christendom 
is that most professing Christians know very little of the gospel, let alone understand its implications for everyday lives. May we go deep. That's what we're going to be doing on Wednesdays. We're going deep into the gospel. We're working it out into our lives, and then we're going out and telling it to the world. And if you're not confident in the gospel you believe, you need to spend more time thinking about it and applying it to your life. And there's hope because that's what the word of God is meant to do. It's meant to to unfold it in all the glorious ways that we see. That's why we need the word of God. That's why we need a high view of God. That's why we need the, the experience of knowing your sin before a holy God. And then the rescue makes sense. And the daily reminder that we need is so gloriously sweet. Look at Psalm 96, the first two verses, and just see what this does in your soul when you regularly meditate on it. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous works among the peoples. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. God has promised to be with us as we tell of his name from day to day, as we declare his glory among the nations, as we preach the good news. He's like, I'm with you in that. Go do it and I'll be with you. Go do it and I'll watch what I do. Watch how I ignite your soul with a passion and I renew you. And I make you gloriously on fire for my things and for the truths of the gospel and the love of the people of God and the joy in celebrating when somebody gets saved. But if we don't go, they won't hear. And then we won't honor Christ's words. So we must remember the gospel and realize that the Great Commission is not just a suggestion. It's a command. It's a mandate. It's a mission. It's for you, for me, for every one of us to take this name and preach it and proclaim it and pray for people to get saved. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Pillar number five. We must understand what it means to be the people of God. Here's bringing it all together and thinking through the implications. Look at verse six and seven. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for he is our God and we are his, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We come to God low and bow down and we lift him up. We behold who he is rightly. We hear the preaching of the word. We receive the testimony of the scriptures. We get awakened to the beauty of God and we can't help but sing and worship and praise and make much of him and make melody into our hearts unto the Lord. 
That's what happens when you come alive to the gospel and you come alive to a vision of God that's biblical. You begin to sing about him. You begin to bubble up in song and praise and joyfully awaken to these realities. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Come into his presence with thanksgiving and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Listen to the verbs in this passage. Come, worship, bow down, kneel before the Lord. Sometimes in, a, in our circles, we can fail to have the reverence before God. There's a sense that this God is king, worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. And when we think about human kings, often you would kneel in the presence of a human king. Sometimes prostrate on the ground, especially in ancient times. And we are coming into the presence of God. We come humbly and we come joyfully and we lift his name up. And when we put ourselves rightly in our place, kneeling before the Lord, our God, our maker, then we can see God for who he really is in his place. And that's a beautiful symphony when it goes on in the church. It's like a harmonious, beautiful symphony playing. And it's better than Mozart. It's better than anything you can imagine. Because it's the design of God to hear the song of salvation sung brightly and loudly. Proclaiming in the midst of the people of God. And when you awaken to that, it's glorious. And that's what this psalm is summoning us to. The worship of the Lord, a self-forgetful worship that comes as sheep before the shepherd. We are his people, verse 7, and the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. This God is shepherding you. He cares about you. He loves you. He's deeply, personally desiring to minister to your soul where you're at. And you may come in here thinking, I've not really thought about this. I've not really had my heart stirred in this way. I've not really been awakened to these truths. And I want to tell you today that there is an answer in this message, in this psalm for us. Because to kneel before the Lord is to acknowledge our need for Him. To acknowledge our dependence on Him. It's This whole psalm screams forth a response of faith. Israel did not believe and perished, but we, the church, have the same warning to awaken faith in us and breathe life into the bones of the church and put flesh and sinews on the church where the church is strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, living out kingdom realities, strong soldiers concerned with not the affairs of this life, but with the will of their master and king, living it out in the real world among real people and taking this fivefold message and showing them the glories of God's word, the beauty of his character and kingliness, the horror of sin, the glories of the gospel, and what it actually means to be a child of God purchased 
by Jesus Christ's very blood. Oh, we get to proclaim this great news. And that's the beauty of the gospel taking root in our souls and making us new and giving us hope and joy and peace and patience and life. Let's pray. Father, I just pray, God, that as you have ministered to us through this word, this is the very word of God. This is the voice of the Lord speaking forth in our souls. Would you minister these truths to our hearts? Would you help us to have steel in our doctrinal spines that when we think about God, we think thoughts that are gloriously, biblically sound. Lord, that when we actually savor the truths of your word, that we would stand on them like Martin Luther. That when we hear about the ugliness of our sin, that we would be grieved at the real sin that we do struggle with. But Lord, that we would be driven to the sweet redemption of our master and our king and our Lord and get help and get hope and get peace and get healing. He's an ever-present help in a time of need. And he creates the people of God by his very own blood. And the spirit of God blows on the church and makes these truths vital and real and powerful in our souls. And I just pray, God, that you would breathe upon us, breathe a word of hope, breathe a word of help, breathe a word of awakening, reviving grace that we would be sent out from here. Bolder, more full of the joy of the Lord and more caught up in the beauty of the gospel. And may we live it out in Jesus name. Amen.